Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, a horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM podcast network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bolt. And this week, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of the third entry in the Bioshock franchise, that being Irrational Games' Bioshock Infinite. Set in 1912, Pinkerton Booker DeWitt is whisked away to the utopian city in the sky of Columbia in search of a missing woman named Elizabeth, who his mysterious employers have requested he retrieve in exchange for wiping away his equally mysterious debt. And fair warning for those who have had their heads in the cloud for the last decade, uh, we will be discussing all manner of story spoilers. But it isn't just Neil and I chatting constants and variables, vigors and profits this week, as we're once again joined by returning friend of the show, Michael Sandel. Michael, welcome back to the show, man. Jay, Neil, thank you so much for having me back on. I've been listening to you ever since the beginning, and it is a true joy to be a guest on the show not once but twice it's good to be in part of the the doubles club <laughs> yes oh man well your enthusiasm for bioshock infinite and you know bioshock in general uh was apparent when you sent us over a lengthy list of notes of talking points and things that you wanted to cover with us today uh so we couldn't be happier to have you here today to chat about it but before we get into infinite uh, i think we should you know, reel it back slightly and just get your read on, you know, Bioshock as a franchise as a whole, right? What does Bioshock mean for you? Um, and what was sort of your first experience with the franchise? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Bioshock as a franchise is one of my favorite things in gaming. Um, you had the episode all about the original game without me, and it was, it was you know, it was, it was, it was fine. Um <laughs> But I, I remember when the game came out back in 2007, um, which seems ages ago now, I was in college. My roommate uh, got all the newest games, all the newest tech. He had. He was an only child, had uh, wealthy parents, so he had all the toys. And he's playing it when I get back from class one day, and I go, what is that? Um, I immediately fell in love with the Art Deco aesthetic, the the music as I've talked about before as as you guys um, kind of spoke about on the the episode about the first game um, after uh, uh, reading what I'd sent in um, I loved how the enemies uh, and specific characters were not just one note bad guys but just so fascinating and layered and disturbed and disturbing and I you know the first big purchase I made with my own money was an Xbox 360 and the collector's edition of Bioshock 2. So, and I remember playing Bioshock 2 uh, while working at a summer camp. Uh, my friends, uh, people I roomed with, just watching me play every evening for weeks on end. And then the first teaser for Infinite came out. And I was like, I don't know what direction they're going, but I, <laughs> I want to go with them. This this looks incredible, and I I have a lot of thoughts on Infinite. I'm I feel the way about Bioshock that I do about the Scream movies, which is timely with the release of the new one. I don't think there's a single bad one. I think there's strengths and weaknesses they all have, but I I've never disliked a Bioshock game. I think that's a fairly common consensus here. You know, it's um well well different ones have their weaker parts here and there they they will bring something to the table um and you know it depends on your approach to it you know as you say you know you you saw bioshock first and were wowed by it and got to purchase the second one for yourself and that was all good 
you know, I was much the same way. I saw the original Bioshock because my dad played. It's one of the last games my dad was really invested in before he sort of trailed off on games, and so I saw that. But of course, being on Xbox that first year, I didn't really play it when it came out to PlayStation. Bioshock Two was like interesting from what I knew of the other game. But yeah, Infinite was like the first time I could come into it and feel like I was into the franchise at the point where I'm comfortable and new as anyone else. You know, like, and to go back, obviously, then later and replay everything else and have it all sort of connect as it does. It, it's it's a nice way to sort of experience. It's probably it's very similar to the way I experienced Mass Effect, where I ended up playing the third. Yes. I played the third game first. You know, and I, and I having missed the first two, and it really gave me a different perspective on going back to those games. You know, and um, yeah, it's nice when you know games have a cycle to them like this. And while this is a lot looser in, in some ways, it's also you know tends out being less so. You know, very much uh, tight knit. <laughs> you could say you could say the circle was unbroken. It right was, now? yeah. I, every time it's you know, anytime we ever talk about this game that's the thing that's always in my head you know that that choral singing and you know the the thing like that there's um there's a song about this game by an artist called miracle of sound called dream of the sky one for each of the and it begins with that same sort of choral hymn and it changes and flows with the exact same way that the story does and you know that it does that it does like the sort of Irish style music for like the revolution and then goes back again round to little tinkly bits of the songbird stuff and then goes into sort of epic sort of soaring thing and it's like a really perfect capsule of what the game's tone goes through and I, I really love that it's so the two things are always interconnected with me you know that song that game and it all begins with that sort of you know choral singing you know I, I really love that aspect of it. Yeah, well, something that Michael mentioned about, you know, that agonizing wait from that initial trailer of Infinite and, you know, initially not even knowing the direction that they were going with, but being on board right away from the outset, right? And I think that a series does not really earn that pedigree or that trust, rather, from fans unless they establish very quickly in a short amount of time with just two games, mm-hmm. right? Something that is not only, you know, intriguing uh, from a gameplay standpoint. But I think more importantly, it's the sort of visual and thematic language of Bioshock that was established from that very first game. And of course, expounded upon in the second. And of course, we'll get be getting into the third. But, you know, the fact that these games have earned that sort of pedigree just from their dedication to world building right out of the gate. And, you know, even thinking not to get too far ahead of myself with the future of what the next Bioshock might look like, it's the type of thing where I'm like, well, I'm on board no matter what because of what came before it mm-hmm. and just how strongly established these worlds were and how almost all the facets within them were a reflection of the world rather than kind of prescribing to what on the surface might just be sort of generic design, if you will, or as Michael said with the bad guys, the bad guys don't necessarily feel like just stock standard enemies or something to that effect. Um, It's more so that they're reflective of the world that they occupy in more ways than one. Um, That I think, you know, that dedication and that commitment to sort of handcrafting seemingly every aspect to reflect Rapture, um, or in this case, Columbia, Mm. I think is what is kind of the through line through these games, despite the fact that, you know, they're going to be dealing with different characters, different thematics, um, and different uh, universes to some degree. 
Yeah. And, and that, that was, that was a big part of the hype for me is like this, this so clearly was not rapture. Um, it wasn't even on the same plane. Literally we were up in the air. We had, even from that initial teaser, you could tell like there was some kind of American exceptionalism thing. There, there was a, a very different vibe, which I respected. Uh, and I don't know how many people back then were, if there was if there was anyone that was whining that it wasn't Rapture again, but as lo- as much as I love that location, I was ready for a new experience, and Infinite certainly promised that, and I they certainly delivered that too. Yeah, I'm sure that there were people that it gave pause. It probably even gave me pause for a moment, right? Because you have a setting like Rapture that is so strong and so well defined, and just you know, even though you've now explored it for two games, it's something that feels so rich that you're like, oh, there's still more stories to be told there. So initially to have them take Rapture and kind of set it to the wayside and be like, no, we're going to give you guys something that is completely different is exciting while at the same time being like having a small seed of doubt, maybe not even a doubt, but just sort of giving you pause. Are they going to be able to recreate something that is as meaningful, that is as rich in lore and world building, or is this going to be Rapture in the sky? Um, and I think that that's something that hopefully we'll be getting to the bottom of uh, with our chat today about uh, Infinite. But Michael, one thing that you sent over in your notes that I wanted to touch upon up front and give you a chance to sort of expand on is that you described Bioshock as the Halloween of game <laughs> franchises. Uh, and I wanted to just give you a moment to uh, you know expand on that a little bit more because that was, that was very, very interesting. Okay. Well, yeah. So – man scream halloween i'm just dropping slasher films you know <laughs> the, the work our engagement in there but no uh i don't know uh how much either of you have looked at the the history of the franchise uh uh ken levine interviews things like that is it ken levine or ken levine i'm not it, positive it's, i would say levine. i believe it's ken levine uh, only, and I only know that it's not Kevin Levine because he came into the ice cream shop that I worked at in high school and I wow. asked him if he was Kevin Levine. And then he tweeted about it later and was just like, I can't, I can't, I can't be upset with anyone that hands me ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. That, that is a really special celebrity encounter story. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, so, so Ken Levine, um, he intended even with the first game, uh, the the studio, um, whoever got to make decisions, pushed him to do certain things that he wasn't fully on board with, like like having uh, different endings. Uh, he in, he intended whether you rescued or harvested little sisters, there was going to be one ending, and he really hammers the point home in Infinite that your choices don't matter, um, but. He wanted Bioshock to be this overarching franchise title that uh, there could be lots of different Bioshock games. And the one thing that, you know, or a few things that just connected them was exploring a highly detailed, dangerous world, having powers um, and, and going deeper with the story than video games were accustomed to in 2006, 2007. I mean, the, the spiritual, um, uh, spiritual predecessor is system shock too. And that game for many people, I actually have never played that one. And every time I, I tell most people that they're like, what you haven't, <laughs> you know, um, that obviously was a big leap and, and Bioshock, uh, just 
took those those themes and those uh i guess leaps in storytelling and and furthered them but he always wanted the name bioshock to to just kind of cover all these different experiences these different stories and when the first game came out and made all the money uh 2k says of course all right we're gonna do another one what's your plans (laughs) for rapture and living was basically like (laughs) rapture's done you know i'm gonna try something different they're like okay we're gonna make another rapture game so bioshock 2 comes out um and i i think that one was treated a little harshly back then yeah. uh, upon release. Yeah, sure. It's 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 since been reappraised. I, I I've always liked it. You know, I, I think they made some some big improvements to the gameplay and they had a smaller, more intimate uh emotional story. And I think it works. Plus we got to see some really neat areas. Yeah. So I, I loved it. But that that was very much like the Halloween film franchise where John Carpenter wanted this anthology thing where every year there'd be a Halloween movie, but it would be a different story. So we started with the slasher and he intended it to, to change each year. But when Michael Myers became America's sweetheart, (laughs) of course they, they got right to work on Halloween too. And then when Halloween three came about, um, it was nothing like one or two. And obviously, uh, took a lot of critical hits for that. Yeah. And um, I was going to say, one of the funniest things about that then that sort of ties in again, if you think about it, is that obviously the DLC for Infinite then kind of goes back to the Halloween 4. It's like, oh shit, we've pissed everyone <laughs> yeah. off. Let's, let's, bring back, <laughs> let's bring back the stuff. <laughs> oh right. man, we'll, we'll talk about Burial C because I've got, I've got some strong feelings on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an important part to discuss because, you know, it really does just affect everything, you know, in a way that, mm-hmm. in a way that DLC doesn't tend to very often. You know, normally when you get DLC, it's like, oh, size stories, expansion and things like that. This is like, no, no, no we're just, gonna keep running with this and add more to the story which is still quite remarkable you know in terms of storytelling i think probably because it comes from that sort of pc centric era of stuff like half-life 2 and ending how that did you know it's um nice to see a continuation of a story in that way well, I think that only a series like Bioshock could have DLC like that that's so fundamentally either rewrites or ends as uh, ends up amending, you know, the core gameplay because anybody that's played Bioshock and has enjoyed it, I feel like you can't not play story-based DLC that is building upon that, right? That's kind of like unmissable. It doesn't feel like the traditional approach to DLC where it's like, "Oh, here's some more missions that is another 4 to 5 hours of gameplay, but Generally speaking, it doesn't really build upon things in a meaningful yeah. way or some type of multiplayer component. But when you say Bioshock is getting new story DLC, that continues the story of two characters that are beloved, I would go so far as to say. I mean, I can't imagine any fans of that series uh, you know, missing out on that. It does feel like, well, Bioshock is such a name, as uh, such a caliber of just, you know, storytelling and game design that you know, fans of those games are not going to miss that no matter what, mm. um, which you can't say for a lot of franchises, I yeah, think. No, that's for sure. Um, right. So I was going to bring on um, something else there, like from your points here, Michael. Um, one of the big changes, obviously, from the outset is we have 
a voiced protagonist in Book of the Wits, you know, going on from another one of those PC staples of, you know, having a silent protagonist. Again, another sort of Half-Life nod in that regard. Um, you know, now it seems a bit odd to say it, you know, it's Troy Baker is like the voice of everything. So it, it's a bit different, hits a bit different now than it did back then when he was pretty much like a one, two punch of a year, you know, for him. But yeah, how did you, um, find that sort of shift from going from a, you know, let the story do the talking and other characters to making you feel more central now? Well, I, I think Troy Baker, you know, he does good work and I think his voice suited the character. Mm. I think I think Booker sounded right. Yes. Um with the with the first game, you what, you have Jack. Um I don't know what he would have been saying that would have really contributed to the story mm. or even to the experience. I, I think it would have been a lot of screaming, really. <laughs> it would um, have been simply sort of reactionary, probably, while not, you know, because it right. that is a big part of his character, right? Is that yeah. he is just this sort of tool, yeah. um, which not to say that Booker isn't a tool in some ways, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, you know, it would exactly it would have been reactionary. Like the last time uh, I was on the show, we talked about Ethan and Resident Evil 8. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it would have been a lot of that. Yeah. And then I with Bioshock 2, Delta, by by virtue of being a big daddy and, you know, what happens to those poor souls, I you may not have been physically able to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's fine. You know, uh, that worked. But with Infinite, <laughs> there was no way you were going to have a silent protagonist. A, because of the story they wanted to tell. But B, because imagine if everything else was the same and he was just stone cold to everyone he came across. <laughs> he just didn't say a word. Um, it, you would not have gotten that that emotional through line with Elizabeth. And that, that was crucial to the game. And whether people like the story or hate the story... I, I don't think you can argue that that uh, Elizabeth is isn't lovable. Mm. Yeah, I mean that, that that's the one sort of standout thing when you go through this game is that Elizabeth, you know, was from the off going to be the star of this. You know, it was even from those early sort of teasers of it. It was yeah, just there, it, it, plain as day, and as a result, you know, Booker is just sort of relegated slightly, you know, to be a witness to everything that's going on. So even though he talks a lot, you know, and is very much involved in the story, it's still never really about him in that way. And so it kind of does keep the faith with what Bioshock was before by, you know, having the story being told by those around you more than you just sort of expositioning the shit out of things, you know, through um, the main character. So yeah, which I think yeah, it's just it was it's a game that in so many ways is sitting sort of crossways uh, of um, the industry and media in general in terms of what it did and what it didn't do and the place you know what it drew from you know it's that year was a very interesting year for games that were you know big games from big companies doing something a little different and having. Largely positive reactions to it, but lots of people sort of having a bit of a whinge about what they didn't do because they missed the old days or they weren't ready for the things they did do new. You know, I mean, that's obviously not all the problems, but 
generally that was what happened with stuff like this with Grand Theft Auto Five, with The Last of Us. You know, all those big ones were just they all had something about them that really shifted those studios in very different ways. When you think about <laughs> those big games of that year, and only one of those studios has put out you know, anything meaningful more than once since then you know it's kind of crazy you know it's um you'd never have guessed it back in the day that the the bioshock team wouldn't have made anything else since yeah and you know i think that and i would go so far as to say maybe part of the colder reception for bioshock 2 was that some people maybe looked at it from afar and kind of had this oversimplification of what it was and were kind of saying like well it's returning to rapture and it's more of the same and while you know i would agree that that has a more tight-knit story or emotional drive, tight-knit nature to its uh, story, right? Yeah. With Delta and the Little Sisters and whatnot, you know, it is another silent protagonist. And perhaps that is why, you know, while nowadays it seems some people maybe are a little more up in the air with Bioshock Infinite uh, story, speaking as the char- about the characters themselves in that relationship, mm. that relationship, I think, in the last 10 years still stands as something that really, if anything, you know, from – point A to point B throughout the story, that is something that is continuously growing and is multifaceted in more ways than one. Um, and it really is a testament to Troy Baker and Courtney Draper's performances because yeah. I still get those little moments throughout, you know, I've played this now three times. There are still beats throughout this game that still land for me the same way between the two of them just because of how, you know, emotional their roles are given. Mm. But more importantly, you know, you can sense that these are like, two fractured characters long before, you know, the the sort of fog of war, if you will, uh, of their backstories is really revealed. Um, and I think that they do a great job of just taking these two people in this very strange world that is even more, you know, over the top, I would say, than Rapture to mm-hmm. some degree. And yet you still have a story that, you know, feels grounded emotionally speaking about people and their relationships and trying to overcome, uh, you know, past misfortunes and, you know, past heinous deeds that were done by the hand of the person who you're in control of. Um, I think that, you know, the game goes to a certain amount of emotional depth that, you know, we've definitely seen more of that in games and in storytelling in games and whatnot, but it is a testament to the way in which their lines, seemingly every line is delivered. It just has so much personality while also having so much pain in everything that's being said, even if it's Mm not a very, you know, dour uh, scene, even in some of the lighthearted moments, it always has this kind of underscore of just like, well, you can make these jokes, but then at the same time, like never really forgetting that one of these people uh, is a killer. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think if you make the characters real, the audience, the player will accept, will suspend their disbelief for pretty much anything. Yeah. Sure. Um, In either of your, you played this a couple of times now, correct, Jay? Yep. Same. Okay. So in either of your playthroughs, did you guys find the moment where uh, you go down to a basement and uh, y- uh, your player character, Booker, can start playing guitar while Elizabeth sings? Yes. Yep. Yep. Every time, because I love that moment. That's what, that is a perfect example, though, because, you know, in this replay, you know, being aware of time constraints and whatnot and getting prepped for this, Sure, I skipped over some little exploration bits because, you know, I've experienced them. But that was one of the moments that I 1000% was not willing to skip because I want that experience again and again. And it hits the same way for me. 
because of the performances that are behind it. Um, and yeah. if anything, you know, that bit that him singing that song, uh, or rather playing that song and Elizabeth singing it being cut short always kills me because I've heard the extended version. I was like, oh, okay, now I definitely have to pause and go listen to the full version because I just I love that song and the way in which they perform it. But I and I, I agree with you, like that's kind of heart wrenching because it is beautiful. But that happening in the game suits the story of the game. Yeah, for because sure. The, the circle's going to be broken this time. Yeah. And weirdly, going back to sort of that Last of Us connection, you know, it's weird that how this, that kind of moment echoes further into The Last of Us Part Two, where you have that sort of circle of Joel and Ellie playing the same things on the guitar throughout that game and having that sort of relationship where it's like about loss and remembrance as much as it is trying to get back what you had. It's like it, it's weird how so many of these games from that year have such connected tissue with each other in these little ways in terms of how they were perceived and in terms of you know what they did in their own special ways. And just to go back to what you were saying before, Jay, about you know maybe two was received differently for whatever reason. I'd say the big reason, especially around that time, was how studios would be set up. Yeah, to the public, you know, you think of any big studio at that time, if they had a subsidiary studio and it was made like the forefront of like, you know, that any sort of promotion for it. And they say, oh, here's a Bioshock that Ken isn't involved with, or here's a Metal Gear game that isn't, doesn't have Kojima making it properly. You know, or here's a GTA game that is abandoning lots of the old stuff you didn't, you know, that you had before. You would rightly go, oh, yeah, and yeah, at the time, because you wouldn't understand. But so with Bioshock, you had it's like they were saying, yeah, here we go, it's 2K Marin, and they're doing it, and they're not the same studio. And if you're smart with your studios, you can kind of blur the lines between your studios and say, okay, well, this is just, I mean, Rockstar were the gods of that, really, you know, back in the day where Bully, Manhunt, you know, Red Dead. L.A. Noir, all of these, they could say they're all under the rock. Everyone always remembers them as rock star titles. The only reason you remember L.A. Noir differently, maybe, is because of the fallout that happened with the developer that made it. You know, but generally speaking, that's it. That's rock star. And, you know, to a lesser extent, you, you can think of what Call of Duty has become for Activision, you know, where every developer that works on it is supposed to be in a cycle, but they all work on it every year anyway. You know, yeah. So now it doesn't really matter. You know, people may pick holes and say, oh, it's that company, it's Treyarch making it this year, so I don't like it or whatever. And the truth is they're all making the game. They're just changing, you know, they're saying, they're putting a, a banner on top of each one to say, it's that kind of game, it's that kind of Call of Duty at that time, this time, each time. So you do build up a perception of what a game will be. So to come to Infinite, you have the return of the king, so to speak, you know, they say, is it, you know, we had this game that wasn't by Ken Levine, and now look, you've got him back again in a brand new setting and all that stuff and the early teases and yeah. It was just like getting Robin Williams back as the genie. Yeah. Yeah. This is it. Yes. We, we all like Dan Castaner, but come on, you know, it, it, <laughs> it can't, you know, there's a clear difference and you, you want it. Yeah. And, you know, I think even more so the way in which 
they go from the first two Bioshocks to now Infinite. And, you know, having a character that is with Booker for a majority of the experience, I mean, how did the handling of Elizabeth in gameplay work for you, Michael? I mean, was it as strong as sort of how they handled her narratively speaking as they did in uh, the gameplay? Well, uh, again, you know, uh, when we shared notes prior to the show, we kind of talked about this, but the all the gameplay, you know, they all the pre-rendered videos they were showing yeah. <laughs> uh, leading up to release, you think, oh, man, I'm going to have to protect this character. It's going to be another escort. It's going to be a game-long escort mission, no. which... I don't, anyone who likes escort missions should not be allowed to have games. Um, I just, controversial statement, I don't know, but that's how I feel. Thinking about it from a mission to an entire experience, right? I don't think anybody is interested in doing an escort game rather than an escort mission, right? Yeah. 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 Right. Thank you. And, uh, you know, you've probably seen the meme uh, where someone's like, you don't want to play Bioshock Infinite. It's an escort mission. He's always losing salts and dying. Because <laughs> she really, you know, we were. I was surprised, as I'm sure many were, that like, not only is she capable, and they, they show you this in gameplay, because the first moment you and her are attacked together, you you they lock the camera for a moment mm. so you can watch her kick somebody in the balls. Yeah. Um, like, oh, she'll, she'll be all right. And then she... She assists you in battle. She's throwing you ammo. She's throwing you salt. She's throwing you med kits. Um, and it uh, that was huge for the emotional connection because the, the writing, of course, needed to be strong. And the way they animated and characterized her needed to be good. Mm. Um, I think they looked at Disney princesses oh, uh, to lot. really... Absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> to, to nail that characterization. But the gameplay um, could really make you like fall in love with her and appreciate her because there were times for me personally, I know others where you have some, you have a fireman or one of the handymen bearing down on you. You are down to two bullets. And then she says, Booker catch, you get ammo at just the right time and, and unload it right in their face before they can tackle you. And you're just like, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) There's um, talking about that actually brings me, back to a game that kind of kick-started this and, again, was a game that wasn't appreciated in its time five years before this, which was the 2008 Prince of Persia, where you had the companion Elika, who was supposed to be the damsel in distress to the prince, uh, played by the other um, Naughty Dog stalwart, Nathan Drake. And, you know, she would assist you in battle. She would save your ass every time. I mean, it was a common complaint of that game at the time. It's like, you can't die because she always saves you. Like, that's like not really understanding the fundamentals of games, which is it doesn't matter if you die or not, it's failing, you know, you're being bailed out. That's the loss you're making. But I found that to be, you know, outside of obviously the obvious one, which is Half-Life 2, um, you know, it's with Alex, it's something that really just showed that you could have a companion like that and just have them be of use to you throughout the story and if, you know, there's lots of similarities in that story and this story in terms of like doom and destiny and all this stuff and trying to prevent it and walking towards it at the same time. And it's, yeah, I, I found that a really sort of interesting through line between that game and where we would be five years later. Because so many games, just, you know, so much of that, that game was rejected out of hand for being 
too easy or, or this whatever because of that the conceit that you couldn't die that was it that was it wasn't anything else and yeah i think it's good to make a companion feel useful you know the, even the ones that people have lamented over the years and have had escort mission aspects you know there's always been a bit that they might be useful in um you know I think they're, they're doing that with Resident Evil 4 with the remake where Ashley is going to be more in line with what we're talking about now she's not she's obviously helpless compared to Leon but is of more use in a realistic way you know it's like you're not just going to stand there doing nothing all the time you know that's that's the way it should be and yeah so yes Elizabeth helping you is such a big thing for this game you know because it does just endear her and you don't get annoyed by her presence and I think that was a good point for gaming to sort of jump forward from that point because after that you had games doing that a lot. Yeah. So it's um yeah, it was a really good example to sort of re kick that kickstart that sort of thing. Well, even thinking about it from not just a gameplay perspective, right? Because after a while, like I said, if you this is a eleven hour game, I'm gonna get pretty sick of if I have to keep worrying about this other person when I have to contend with the fact that Booker's fighting, you know, these monstrosities of Columbia himself. But it's the type of thing also where then if you're overly worried about another character, thematically it doesn't work with her character because the reality is is that she's the strongest person in Columbia, right? Mm. And that really she is being viewed as a damsel in distress and treated as one. And to a certain extent, early on when you first meet her, you know, she behaves like one because that's kind of like her own view almost of her identity. Mm. But in reality, you know, the more she grows into her powers and the more in which, you know, she's able to actually freely use them once, you know, you bring down um, her cage, then she comes into that role as being, no, I am actually the strongest person in this world of Columbia and whatnot. Um, And the responsibility that goes with that. So, I am glad the way that they handled that, even if some people, I don't know, might say, well, you know, you never have to worry about her and she's this constant stream of resources. It's like, well, for this game, it makes sense and it works in a way said, that yeah, yeah. complements the experience in more ways than one. Yeah, and there, yeah there are just absolutely. so many games that have done that since it, it, and shown that it's workable. It, it doesn't even have to be the same analog. You know, it doesn't have to be a human companion. It could be a, a robot companion or whatever, you know, or an AI or whatever it is. Having someone on the other end who can help you out in battle, be part of your, your team like that, and be part of your moveset even in some cases. And it, it's a really good way to do it. I mean, probably like the pinnacle of that is the duality of game like um, Brothers, you know, with the Tales mm-hmm. Who Sons, mm-hmm. you know, where you are basically... I still need to play that one. Yeah, I mean, there you go. You're, what, you're controlling both at once and having that, or even... To a way out, the game that followed that, where it takes two from Joseph Farris's team, the games that take that sort of companion idea and make each of you the companion to each other in a co-op sense. You know, seeing how this sort of game spearheaded that, you know, went, you know, got that idea back out there and made it palatable again, you know, and gave it you know personality to more than one character. It's great. I mean. You think, again, we're talking about this year of similarities. Another game that was doing a bit of that, you know, the co-op idea of this that year was Dead Space 3, which had smart ideas, had smart, but, you know, had none of the sort of connective, you know, the two characters just had nothing in common. Complete clash didn't work out. 
and most of it was gimmicky in terms of like what you could um, learn from different perspectives but it was rough and ready but it worked just about you know as an as a concept and you sort of to think that those two, two sort of ideas were married and made into things later that were and worked out so brilliantly it's fascinating to see these sort of you know start points for where the industry goes that feel kind of subtle for the you know larger sort of trends that you get in the industry also something i appreciate about elizabeth that does not get talked about nearly enough yeah is that she keeps pace she is not faster than your walking speed and she is not slower than your running speed yeah something that i was thinking about i'm so glad that you mentioned that is just that you know i completely forget about her when i get thrown into combat which is exactly what I want to happen if I'm in an escort mission or something comparable, right? One of the things that, always, you know, as much as I love The Last of Us, not to always keep bringing it back to that, but one thing that I can't stand in that game is when I'm, you know, in stealth mode and I'm kind of, you know, sneaking around and whatnot. And, you know, Ellie is also then sneaking around, but she kind of just like blatantly runs by an enemy or something, or she's like constantly in the way. And it kind mm. of breaks my immersion as much as you know, that can happen with a game about the undead and whatnot. Um, it's one of those little things that always kind of like irks me. Um, but in this, you know, Elizabeth always feels as if she's like right over my shoulder or she's just out of my, um, my peripheral vision, which is exactly what I want because yeah. then I'm only reminded of her presence when, you know, as an escort, she is either, you know, calling something out or she's supplying me with the resources that I need, whether that be a tear or salts or uh, firearms. A really, really well done handling of her. And it's the type of thing, too, where you just more so every time, you know, you revisit this game or just the further you get from its release, just thinking about, you know, qualities of this game that I don't feel like people were championing it for or even really like bring up all that often, right? I think that when this game first came out, you know, talking about the storytelling and the characters and whatnot, which is great. But in revisiting this game, you know, there are little elements uh, such as we've just been discussing that I think help this to, uh, you know, stand out still as a quality Bioshock uh, experience and whatnot all these years later. Um, but I think before we dive into a little bit more of the world of Columbia, and the plight of Booker DeWitt and Elizabeth. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll dive more into that. And we are back from our break, and I would love to dive a little bit more into the world of Columbia. We'll return to our protagonists uh, soon enough, but I think that you know, as much praise as we had been heaping upon Rapture in the beginning of the episode, I would love to chat about just you know, the city in the sky and how successful Irrational Games was in creating this new, you know, seemingly utopia, but as will quickly uh, become apparent to the players, uh, it is a dystopia, much like Rapture. So, uh, Michael, for you, you know, was Irrational able to create a world that was as visually engaging and rich with lore as Rapture was? So short answer, yes, but I have <laughs> to disagree with you. Columbia is not a dystopia. It is a uh, theocratic fascist state that you help to bring down in real time. I stand corrected. <laughs> <laughs> but so Bioshock, again, you know, the first game, I have very, very little I can say about it. That's negative. Um, and we did keep a lot of praise on it at the beginning. The, the one thing, and especially exacerbated by the second game, is the visual storytelling, I, it's it's so strong. And, and 
they were working towards things they were perfecting it as they went but you look at certain certain elements uh bloody graffiti on the walls which in 2007 was not done to death (laughs) um but you know (laughs) by the time you get to like the later dead space games and things of that nature i mean yeah it's like a span of a few years yeah it's 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 kind of bordering on parody at that point like you expect to see like a child's drawing like i like being alive with my blood all inside me (laughs) you know and and infinite especially because you things are great when you get there or at least that they're great for a certain class of people um but but things things are intact when you get there yeah it's it's not like you came to the party late like in bioshock um so they had a very different assignment for how they wanted to get across just how screwed up this world is and 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 in what way it is screwed up so and i you know i think that's really expertly done after you get to the city uh, immediately when you get to the city you you exit the uh the elevator or the the wonkavator as it were <laughs> and it looks so peaceful you've got the music as we've we've lightly touched on and we'll discuss further the music but you, you've got the beautiful choral music you've got the 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 water you've got the candles you have stained glass showing this uh this this generous prophet leading his people to the new eden and you're like okay this this is great um and then you turn a corner immediately you see a giant marble relief statue of this same prophet and you see the i guess you can call it a verse uh he will lay waste to the sodom below and drown in flames the mountain of man you're like that already has taken quite a turn and as you go through, uh, prior prior to the raffle, um, you see more evidence that not all is well in the floating city because you've got these uh, propaganda posters about a false shepherd and you see that you're, you're stopped on the bridge for that parade uh, illustrating just how Columbia came to be and what what we're, we're working with here and obviously any most people had already seen the marketing they already played the first two games they know it's going to get violent soon enough but up to even before you get to the raffle and and things are made very clear about what kind of society this is i think they do an excellent job seeding those those moments of what the hell yeah yeah, you know, something that I'm very appreciative, especially on this replay, is the fact that while, it, like you said, everybody knows that this is about to fall apart and become very violent, it doesn't feel like Irrational streamlines the intro to the game just to get there, right? They don't feel the need to kind of brush past a setup that, you know, the first two games had that is more about kind of capturing the atmosphere and the dread of what you know is about to unfold and whatnot. And the fact that they lead with an intro that to some extent feels very similar, right? And familiar to the original with the lighthouse and everything. 
But at the same time, they're able to make it intriguing in a new way with one of Infinite's biggest, you know, changes, arguably its largest change with the addition of, you know, protagonists that speaks and whatnot. And you have that boat ride and you have Booker's interaction with, you know, at the time you don't know this, but with the Lutesses and whatnot and the whole he doesn't row. What? Uh, Oh, no, he doesn't row. And it's kind of like intriguing and confounding Mm -hmm. and brooding all at the same time. And it captures your intrigue in a way that, you know, normally if it didn't have that sort of interaction up front, you might just kind of be like, well, it's another lighthouse, right? It's going to be another society that falls apart. But the way in which they're able to give you something you're expecting and then as you've been, you know, discussing the fact that they're able to lay out this very angelic society that has yet to fall apart and by all accounts is very unlike the last two Bioshocks and just establishing the world and also the lore because unlike Rapture where other than the Art Deco, much of that world when you arrive there is unfamiliar and alien. Mm-hmm. But with you know Columbia and whatnot, the fact that you start seeing more emphasis on religion, you start to see you know artwork that is I'm sure was representative of the time period in which the game set in, uh, you know, overtly racist in some ways, but also the fact that you start to see members of American, you know, different presidents and whatnot that are being, uh, they basically are like deities, right? You see statues of them and whatnot and how they play into the architecture of that world. Um, it's something that is still somewhat shocking before the game becomes, you know, overtly terrifying and shocking, right? I think that having a world that does have, pieces of our own that are very recognizable and seeing how they're being, you know, twisted and manipulated to fit this new world. Um, it's, it's jarring in a way that I appreciate them doing in the, uh, before, you know, the entire thing falls apart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the turn itself, I'm not a big fan of the way that's executed, but the opening of this game is, among one of my, you know, my favorites, you know, in terms of like how it's presented, everything it tells you, everything, you know, especially when you come back to it in context, it, it's just communicating the game's themes and story perfectly. When you think about it, you know, the fact that you start the way you do with the same routine and but inversed somewhat, you know, giving you a hint at, you know, where this, um, is all going in terms of this multiversal story as it ends up being, you know, I, I, it was at a time when that wasn't done to death, as we've already said about things being done to death, you know, um, it was amazing to see. And just the ascent was really good. I think, um, the thing I'd take from that sort of ascent to Columbia is that it fits like the theme fits for the original Bioshock. In the, in the original Bioshock, you are descending into the madness of that world. And here you are ascending into a vision of heaven for fanatics, you know, uh, fanatics idea of heaven. And you are ascending and everything you see has a heavenly vision as long as you don't look too closely. You know, I love that. You know, that. And even in that, before you set foot in Columbia, you could, if you like, you can see little hints of it, little hints. And yeah, just that getting there, the grandiose spectacle of it all, the music, little hints and teases that, you know, something's not 
quite right with you know, the time period and what you're seeing and hearing. And I love that. It, it, it works so well as an opening. It's so, so strong. And it, the problem is then is that you know it has to go wrong. And it's how does it go wrong? And there is where, for me, it kind of whiffs it a little bit. Because I think subtlety was needed to do what it did there. And they could have gone any number of ways to make that point. And, yeah, I think when we continue talking about this game in general, one of the things that you can say about this is it's got its heart in the right place with things, but it's often handled in a very messy manner. And you can appreciate it for that, you know, that it is trying to do something a bit different. And no, it doesn't always work, but I think... I, I'm used on it on Twitter in the week to say it's kind of like the Southland Tales, you know, in terms of Ken Levine, because, you know, Donnie, his Donnie Darko is the original Bioshock, you know, people raved about it and obsessed about over it, all the little details and, you know, the, ironically, the sort of time travel, time loop stuff kind of fits in a way. And then you have the Southland Tales, which, you know, is a swing, you know, a real big swing and, it does interesting things, but it doesn't quite work in places and it takes time to be appreciated and you will never quite have everyone appreciate it because some people will just say, I played it that one time, I don't want to ever play it again. In the same way, they would say that about that movie. And yeah, that's fine. That's the way. And going back to the Halloween analogy, you know, it's you know the same way people were for a long time with Halloween 3. So you know, it's... It's fine. It works well for that as a game. It's just interesting that that was it, you know, after that. And then they tried to sort of steer the ship back towards shore, you know, and um, instead of going out to the, uh, the deeper water. Yeah, you know, I think for me, what I'm more impressed with with the world itself is just how, again, you know, you have these little. I suppose I don't suppose they're not subtleties, but they're these sort of like fleeting little details yeah. that you pick up on, right? I think, for instance, like you find that uh, the Order of the Raven, which is basically like Columbia's version of the KKK, right? And the fact that you know they've taken John Wilkes Booth and he's this martyr, right? Mm-hmm. Idolize him, and they've got this statue and they've got this whole you know emblemography and whatnot that is representative of him, right? And just the fact in which they're able to take these elements of American history and to see what it would be like if people continued and ran with them and made these organizations that are even more so, uh, you know, exemplified by the fact that Columbia is supposed to be a haven for their twisted ideals and whatnot and to see how people can run with that. And, you know, that is such a small detail in the overall scheme of things. And I kind of wish we had had more moment as horrifying as those elements are. I wish we had almost had more sort of weirdness around elements like that just to see you know it would be a true extrapolation of what would happen if these people could run with you know their fucked up ideals and viewpoints on society and people and race and whatnot but they're using the you know the untapped or unlimitless power that is available in Colombia with you know the vigors and all of these different things um, I just find that little elements like that throughout the game do a good job of making Colombia interesting even if as you said you know in the large scale of things the storytelling as a whole for me is somewhat messy and yeah. muddled a little bit but what all games in this series do really well is have 
this general consensus of too much power is not ever going to work out well. You, you, give, sure. you give someone too much money and power, they will have this idea in their head of what life should be like, and they will try and inflict that on as many people as possible. And when is that more apt than now? You know, when, when we see mm. it everywhere. So, you know, in that sense, the Biotrick Infinite is just as relevant as it was then. It's just, but you can see it more now. And then where you could criticize it for being a bit blunt force. Now you look at reality and go, maybe a bit fucking subtle, you know, um, when, when the guy who wants to fucking go to Mars can't even make a website <laughs> work. So, so <laughs> uh, we, and I, I know some people, uh, were aggravated that once, uh, the turn occurs in infinite, the themes of racism, American exceptionalism, um, Columbia being a very vertical society, those were more or less put to the side mm. in favor of what the game was doing with the Booker, Elizabeth, and the whole uh, multiverse angle. But in a weird, sad way, I think that's appropriate too because we have these situations happening to this day where people are mistreated, maligned, yeah. Uh, othered and made to be feared, um, and we're focused on our story. We're we're the main character. Um, that's how it is for a lot of folks. Yeah, yeah, and so. you know, I think whether it's you know meant or not, you know, that there are aspects of that during the revolution section, you know, uh, where they kind of make that very clear. You know that you know it's like it's really about how Booker and his way of thinking has some sort of substance to it and it all works out the way it does. You know, it's always there. No wonder the game has the portrayals and no wonder it's like this because look at who Booker is and what he is to be. You know, that's, it's there. You know, you don't just grow into that. You know, you don't grow into that feeling. You are that person, you know, it's like, and he obviously was that person from the outset, and, you know, that's, for that time, you know, that they're in, makes sense, you know. Um, problem, of, of course, with it, it's so subtly done that you can't really confirm or deny if it was meant, but, I, you know, you could see it, you know, I think, you can see something there where there's meaning that just maybe wasn't communicated as well as it could have been. And that, I think that's fair. Um, I actually, Jay, want to talk about what you had mentioned, the Order of the Raven, because Columbia is so different from Rapture. Mm. And as you are, uh, you know, you're, you're fighting guards, you're, you're running through the streets, you got your sky hook, you're possessing turrets, <laughs> and you come across the Order of the Raven, and things get, uh, to me at least, much more traditionally Bioshocky and, yeah. um, because you enter this dark, quiet, unnerving place uh, with very clear visual storytelling that you should not be here. Mm. Um, and I, I think that ties into a larger question um, for a lot of people, which this, of course, is subjective, but I'm going to ask the two of you, is this game scary? Hmm. I think visual. I would say visually... It is more dis profoundly disturbing, I think, because, you know, while 
Rapture is clearly a haunted house through and through from start to finish underneath the ocean, right? I think Columbia, and we've kind of mentioned this, right? A majority of the game is very vibrant, right? The first three-fourths almost of that game is very vibrant, and, you know, the game begins very angelic-like and whatnot. But then you start to explore these little pockets of moments that feel more horror-centric, kind of like the one that you're mentioning. And, you know, that really does kind of pull away the facade of this being the angelic ideal society, right? In that while everything looks perfect on the outside in this very vibrant, again, you know, sun-scorched sort of uh, majority of what the experience looks like, there are these pockets of what is really underneath the surface. And, you know, it becomes more and more apparent the further that you're, um, you know, exploring Columbia and whatnot. Um, So I would say that it is not perhaps for me a traditional type of horror, but I think that it's more about perhaps you know the horror of man and whatnot, as maybe generic as that sounds. Yeah, it, it's a different it's a different vibe, right? It's yeah, Rapture's a haunted house, and Columbia's the Trump White House. <laughs> yeah, I mean the thing I would like it to is that you, when you look at a lot of um, modern horror in gaming, you know, it's done by taking innocent things and and twisting them somewhat you know and making them the horror and there's kind of an aspect of this you know where everything the horror in itself is that it's everything's trying to be perfect with a horrible dirty bug-filled entity underneath it you know it's like it, it it's a bunch of bugs and shit in a suit you know and trying to make you believe that it's you know the next president sort of thing and which you know, is fair enough in previous presidents, but here that kind of works as a whole thing. So even though it doesn't really ever go into specifics in terms of horror, it's just that sort of unreality that the one thing that I took from this game at the time was you know, I had, was reading through the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. And there is a lot of stuff in this that is that, you know, and, you know, especially the portals and, you know, the multiverses and the ideas of all like that and interlinking worlds and things and like that. So that had a lot of that, you know, where they go to places that once were normal and now they become strange and decayed and not quite right. You know, in some of them in the same way that Rapture is, some way in the same way that Columbia is. And that in itself is the fascinating horror, isn't it? You just have something that should be normal, but underneath you can just, if you look closer, you will see it. And that is it. And as I was saying earlier, that's always the thing with, with this game is that it presents itself in such a, you know, holy way that you, are almost immediately suspicious of it, you know, because right. unless you are, you know, religious uh, to a fanatical degree yourself, you're going to look at it and go, bit much, you know, and that's it. I, the technology might not be believable, but the idea that there would be a society that could be based around those ideals is very believable. Mm. Uh, and if anything, you know, in the last 10 years since the game was released, that even seems like a viable reality for a certain portion of, you know, the country, if not, you know, yeah, hopefully not the world, right? It's that idea that um, if you can, if once they find that technology, it's like, it doesn't sound so far-fetched when you start to think about, you know, the realities of who we, you know, brush shoulders with, perhaps on a daily basis, even yeah. still. Absolutely. And, you know, I 
I guess it depends on your definition of horror too, because oh, yeah. the the there are characters in Infinite that are horrific and do horrific things. Um, it's not it's not a jump scare mansion. It's not oh, no, that no, kind sure. of thing. No. But where it clicked for me uh, is actually when you're fighting Slate and his men, mm-hmm. because here are soldiers. Here are people who followed orders, who served their government, which in this case was Colombia, right? Yeah. Uh, originally the United States government, then the city succeeded. Um, but they, they, they were good soldiers. And now they've been disgraced. They've been cast aside. Um, they, they are white men. They are decorated fighters. But that doesn't matter because they've outlived their usefulness. Mm. And what they want is an honorable death, a soldier's death. And because of what Booker needs and what the story needs, most of them don't even get that. No. Um, and that's horrifying to me. I, You have the choice uh, to kill Slate or let him live. And if I remember correctly, if you do not kill him, you find him later um, near the end of the game when you're trying to rescue Elizabeth lobotomized mm-hmm. yeah. and so the game does have things to say about about race about veterans about about all these people and it, it's horrific to think about because technology aside science fiction aside uh all this stuff seems very real yeah i mean the thing you touched upon there is something that as you say it's very relevant now and has always been is the idea of a government in any form creating an other to manipulate the people who are loyal into staying loyal and then discarding them and then still not really seeing it, you know, and and that's kind of haunting in its own way. Furthermore, talking about themes that are even more relevant now, you know, you just think about the treatment of veterans, right, and how they go out and they do this job and then they come back and try to integrate into society and then – what does society do? They cast them aside or thinking about the fact that, you know, the the debacle that is sort of like getting uh, not only reintegrated into society, but getting like the medical treatment they mm-hmm. need and therapy and all of these things and whatnot. And it's like in the United States, what is the biggest issue? One of the biggest issues now is like the formation of these groups that are made up of people that, you know, went off to fight. And what's the only skill set that they have? And it's to fight and mm-hmm. a society that doesn't want them. What are they going to do? use that skill set in these ways that are manipulated by people that prey upon their disenfranchisement. So there are examples of this game that I think in terms of its storytelling that are not only more relevant, but are, you know, handled well. I think for me personally, it's just that the way that they're handled in the story, it's such a small sliver of something that I find to be more interesting perhaps than where the narrative goes in the second half, you know, with some of the multiverse stuff, Granted, again, you know, if I wasn't as invested in Elizabeth and Booker, I don't know. You know, the multiverse stuff for me is not nearly as interesting, but I think I would be even more, I don't know, removed from it if I wasn't invested in Booker and Elizabeth uh, as much as I was. And I I find that there's so many little sort of narratives going on in this that are sort of like just a sliver of what they could be. Um, that, you know, with each playthrough, I'm kind of like, oh, man, I wish we could spend a little more time with this section or expanding on, you know, whether it's 
the soldiers with wounded knee and slate, whether it's the Vox Populi and Fitzroy and whatnot. I just, I kind of wish we could explore those characters and those little microcosms of storytelling more so. Yeah. Um, but that is also a testament, I think, to a rational being able to create a world that is multifaceted and very complex and has these characters that are genuinely well-written and just sort of well-rounded only until, you know, their usefulness is served with this bite-sized slice of uh, yeah. what they're trying to get across. I think some of that feels like just game development woes, you know, like um, we can have all the, you know, which is the same in any medium, really, probably bar books, where you kind of have to make adjustments to making a point and subtly it's thrown out the window for a good runtime. And there are moments in this where, like I said before, you, you could doubt it. You know, you, you can't say for sure whether it was meant, but when we talk about these sort of nuanced bits we've just been discussing, it's like, the problem is they're so fleeting that you kind of look at it and go, maybe they meant it, or maybe it's just my brain thinking of it in the same way that someone might look at it and go, well, this game only does this, this, and this, you know, and I don't like that it doesn't really address things properly. It's like, yeah, it really does just depend on how open you are going to be to what the game is offering and how deep you feel it actually is. Now, I think you can have sincere thoughts about, you know, politics, race, religion, and still with it, but have some sort of earnest nature to you where it, it comes through in some way, you know, and I think Bioshock Infinite does have that it has something about it where even if you don't necessarily agree with the way things are handled at times and you think that maybe they could have just pushed certain other areas higher than they do some you are left thinking yeah but it made me think about things at least you know it made me it put that in there and at a time before people were you know out there eye rolling that stuff because they don't like to hear about it, you know, because they don't want to be spoon-fed it, as they put it. And here, it was like it was just there, you know, like that. And I don't know, it's an interesting mix of things because I think the the, the twist on this game, in terms of like response from the public and critical thinking, that was so swift, is that you know, gameplay was the first thing that really got torn apart by people and then there was a, a smaller subsection that then went after you know the themes and whatever it did but you know the political stuff and, and the race stuff and that in the and the whole thing about religion were kind of actually the last thing people really latched onto i think at the time you know um it really was just we were at a time in gaming where people were just you would have an audience out there were out to moan about anything well, yeah, and there's always there's always people who are gonna like, um, you know, like they're gonna judge the the thing they want it to be, not the thing they got. Exactly, because that happens so, in everything. Yeah, it, it happens in wrestling, it happens in in movies, music, whatever. You will always have people who have an idea or an expectation, and sometimes it's not their fault. It is literally what they have been shown, and. It translates that well sometimes, especially in the modern era, it's more down to fan theories taking over actual reality and people just 
being pissed off that their their mad ideas weren't true, and that's it. You know, we we experienced this with say like the Silent Hill two remake for about God knows how many years, and then of course when it came to be what it was, people were like, oh no, not that. And so you know, you you get this. You know, people have an idea of what they want, who they want to do things, and down to the letter. And it's like, but those are the people you don't really want to impress when you think about it, because they're the people that want safe things. They want things that are exactly how they want it. They know what they want. And that's it. And I think even if you can point at the flaws in a game, like with this one, you can at least say, well, if it's divisive and people are looking at it in different ways, that's good. Yeah. And that means you've created something that's making people talk. You know, whether that's because it's popular or whether it's because you took a bit too big of a swing at something. It didn't quite hit it as well as you thought you would. Doesn't matter. It's like the best art is up for debate and it always will be. Yeah. You know, I think that for me, again, what is really the through line for this game um, is just the fact that at the core of it, what the storytelling that's going around the two protagonists the protagonists are what are driving me through this. And it's what makes me overlook some of the messy nature of it. Like I'm not, again, like I said, that big into the multiverse stuff, but the fact that it is all pertaining to these two characters and it does, you know, thinking about how it's coming full circle in terms of just, you know, having this narrative that when you go back and start thinking about and reanalyzing bits and pieces and interactions and these things, you start to see little bits of significance. And I think that overall, that's why some of the elements of storytelling or themes and how they're handled in this game, while I find them to still be messy, it doesn't irk me to the degree that I think it clearly does, you know, recently <laughs> on Twitter, right? For some people, and that's probably putting it lightly. Um, I think that I just, I like those characters so much and I like how everything ties together with them in a way that if anything, it makes these more interesting characters Despite the fact that, you know, early on they're introduced as like, oh, the hired gun, oh, the damsel in distress. And they get more and more complicated the further into the game you get. Um, and I think that that's ultimately what makes Infinite um, a standout in the Bioshock canon, right? I think that it could, some people again could be like, well, you know, it's just rapture in the sky and, you know, it's just Jack, but he speaks now. But really, you know, it's tackling themes in a way that it has previously, which is, you know, intrinsically tied to the Bioshock brand at this point. Um, and while, you know, the gameplay perhaps to some extent might be very similar uh, to what was came before it, right? I think some different, uh, some different guns and some different vigors now instead of plasmids. But at the same time, I think that um, the characters are just of a caliber that are so strong that it makes me care more about the elements that even if I find them messy, uh, they work because they complement the characters. Yeah, I think I kind of wish the game had been made later than it was, maybe to have a better feel for what it does, because I think it would have been better appreciated. But then I look at stuff that is almost a criticism of itself, you know, in history. And one of the things for Bioshock Infinite that I will always appreciate is that it is a game with a disdain for its own past, you know, in the same way that Metal Gear Solid 2 is. You know, it, it's something that wants to be made, wants to be created, wants to be something, but does so 
to destroy what came before in some way. You know, I love that, you know, because, uh, I mean, if you want to take it in movie terms, you know, the Matrix, the latest Matrix movie is that, you know, a movie that is hatefully made to avoid someone else making one of those soft reboot things that don't really do the job, you know, it's like, you know, an anti-sequel and it's brilliant because of that. But of course, that doesn't address the people who literally just wanted to come in and watch a Kung Fu movie with, with stuff. And that's it. And you, that's you know, I, I could not get on board with the latest matrix, yeah. um, but one, I can, I cannot fault it for uh, playing it safe. That's for sure. Yeah, this is it. I mean, and this is the great thing about art that does that. You, know, you, you, we can all have very different opinions on these things when they do try something that is, actively trying to push away part of a fan base and what we were talking earlier about you know how they greenlit a sequel because it was a successful thing you know and it worked out that way and you could almost feel how that would be for, for anyone making something that would end up being successful you would you're going to resent it to some degree because you had this very clear vision of where you wanted it to go and now it's been taken out of your hands and it's like, in a way, you knew that might happen. But the only way you can regain any kind of control is to kind of subvert it. Now, that only works with Bioshock Infinite before the DLC. But Oh, my God. But, yeah, you know, but in that time, and, and this is why the DLC just feels very much like a bit of a, an anthem to this, you know, as a game, but even then, it's something that is has like a, a barb to it, an anger to it that says, "Okay, you wanted more of the, what we had before. Here you go," and deliver it in a way which, I, for you, I'd imagine, is something where you're thinking, "Well, you know, this is a series I love. They're going back to that place that." birth this love for this this series for me and deals with it in a way that is going to be abrasive you know and in much the same way that when you were talking about the matrix sequel um but let's let's talk about the dlc for a second let's talk about burial c yeah i think because oh my goodness neil jay when when they started advertising this i could not have been more excited like we're back in rapture at the height of its glory, Booker and Elizabeth are there. How, why Booker's a PI. There's a mystery to figure out. Like it was, it was throwing everything I could have wanted into a blender. And I'm like, I have got to play this. And when the, the part two, when you're Elizabeth, it's weird that Bioshock people smarter than me have already said this, but it's weird that Bioshock wasn't already a stealth game from the jump. It's so perfect, right? I, everything should have been, I, I should have been all about it, but they made some story choices <laughs> that I feel not only weakened the characters, I think they robbed the agency of a lot of uh, other characters and I think there's just some logical gaps. Like they swear up and down. It's the same rapture featured in the first two games. And I, I tell you, there's no way 
Like I have thought about this. I have done research. There, there is like yeah, we're seeing new locations. Yeah, you know they want to be like, oh, there just were no sky rails in the areas you visit in one and two. No, 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 yeah, no, no, no. That that it, completely was just like the story stuff aside. The fact that they worked in the sky rails into Rapture, I was just that sort of thing. I was just like, oh man, this feels like we're kind of shoehorning in new features here just to justify. It's not so drastically different of a gameplay experience from what the people that you know just played through Infinite and spent eleven hours utilizing so, yeah, them. This that was my big hurdle, at least. Yeah. So this is where the whole Matrix thing comes in for me, is where it feels like a rebuttal to what's come before. Is you have something that is so much feels like two K saying, "Look, it's great that you're doing something new, but." People kind of want the old shit. So can we have a bit of the old shit, please? And they reluctantly make the old shit and go. I mean, the fact that we hadn't, didn't get anything after this is obviously for various reasons, but this feels like a kill switch in so many ways because mm. it just mm. kind of says, well, it's this way or no way. And the way it ends is so bleak that it can't be anything other than a fuck you. Yeah, and that's it. And you know, it's saying, "Oh, you want this? You want rapture? Here's your rapture. Fucking eat this, and that's it." And I respect it for that. You know, I don't think it helps uh, the cause of Bioshock Infinite or the story of Bioshock as a whole. And I guarantee that now that nobody here is involved with the next one, that that will be retconned somewhat. But still. See, I I think they should go back to the anthology idea. Yeah, I think four should not even mention events of the first three. I d- yeah, I think they will just ditch the multiverse thing, especially because every fucker is doing the multiverse now. And now, right. <laughs> I mean, the idea for Bioshock, right? We talked about it early on in our chat, right? It's that what really should be linking Bioshock games between one another is the attention to creating a world that's built around. Uh, you know, the extremes of societal views and these things and the thematic kind of connective tissue. It shouldn't be this narrative continuation or how you can really interweave all of these things. Like, I guess for me with Barrel at Sea, for starters, replaying all of part one and then I played half of part two, part one, in my opinion, is completely skippable. I didn't think that that was redeeming in almost any facet for me. I didn't think it was an interesting continuation of a universe of Booker and Elizabeth and whatnot. I didn't think that, you know, like I said, like they're shoehorning in certain features from Infinite into this world that just don't make sense. The kind of shoving down, uh, down our throats, the fact that, oh, well, these worlds are actually connected in these things. What I was intrigued with with part two was the fact that it fundamentally changes the approach to gameplay, being more stealth, Right. That makes sense. That's an interesting way, I think, to maneuver that world. And, you know, kind of like Michael was saying, like, that's an interesting angle that always would have worked, it seems, with the world of Rapture and whatnot. For me, though, it's the type of thing where I'm kind of like, this doesn't feel really justified outside of presenting an interesting gameplay angle or new spin on gameplay for exploring a world that I love. But again, it's the same problem that I have with infinite storytelling is that it just it feels a little too messy in how it tries to tie yeah, everything together. It's trying together. to use the multiverse as an excuse for plot holes. For everything. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it, this and, is like the example 
above all examples. You know, we get it all the time now, especially with like the Marvel stuff. And it's there that you can say, well, now you can just wash away any consequence because this happens, this happens. It's like, who gives a shit what happens when you know there's infinite versions of this happening? And in the, the game as it stood, that cosmic wonder, a time that wasn't really explored heavily in media, was something to admire because you were looking at going, you know, first you're being told, uh, like you said before, that what you're doing doesn't really matter because there are, it's happening in different ways, in different avenues, all out there. And that's just devastating in a way and kind of just knocks you for six when you think of it that way. However, you may feel about the execution and maybe it's clunky the way they go about it. The concept at the time was fairly fresh in terms of like to, to bring to the masses and it deserved more, you know, than what ended up happening. But like I said, that just feels like studio, studio interference. Yeah. And, you know, as much as I enjoy getting to spend more time with Sander Cohen in Barrel at Sea, at the same time, again, the elements that I wanted to explore more, it just, it feels like it barely is scratching the surface of Rapture. I feel like if I'm going to be returning to Rapture, I want you to take the elements that worked so well in the original two and just expand on those even more. But it's like, sure, using Fontaine's department store as a prison is a cool concept. Having Cohen come back into play and whatnot yeah. and seeing the him at the height of his power before, you know, he's kind of in the uh, the height of his power in the dystopian sense. Um, it's just it's too fleeting and few and far between. Yeah. And it doesn't expand on the the new protagonists in a way that I find to again justify just kind of cashing in on our nostalgia and love for the setting of Rapture. Yeah. So one thing I do like about this DLC is that it continues the idea of a cycle. You know, in both the main game and this, compared to the original Bioshock, you are there at the fall. You know, you are there causing the fall of Rapture. And as much as you are in Columbia with Booker, that's brilliant. I think that, Again, that feels deliberate. That feels like a very deliberate move. You know, and I, I like that for it. So, sorry, go on. So. <laughs> but, but yeah, and like visually, it's amazing, mm. you know, but I, I think there was so much, you know, I love Rapture. I, I love what they've created. I played every piece of Bioshock content there is because I just want to see more, see what else they could come up with. I, yeah. you know, the, the the what was originally a Sony exclusive, those challenge rooms. I love the what they created with the carnival and the Ferris wheel. Yeah. I love Minerva's Den, which incidentally I think is some of the best Bioshock there is and more people need to play that. Mm-hmm. Um but uh you know I and I was very excited to see like Rapture in its prime. But I, the locations themselves, as beautiful and well-rendered as they were, there was nothing interesting about them in of themselves. Like, yeah. if you were going to do this, why don't you show me some of the stuff that was that was planned and never happened? Like, they talked for uh, a while about, I forget if it was the first game or the second game, they talked about having to cut a level that would have been the Rapture Zoo. Yeah. That mm. would have been dope. Yeah. Well, there's one instance, I think, that is 
really depicting what you know you want and what I want, and I assume what Neil would have wanted out of a return to Rapture. And that's when early on you're exploring and you come to what is just kind of like a bar area. And one of the bartenders is using a vigor to transport around the bar to ask people if they want drinks and even like lights a cigarette by snapping his fingers. And that's how he lights cigarettes, right? Those are just like little moments that show a very natural and honest sort of fly on the wall perspective of what a society would look like that has all of these amazing abilities and whatnot to the degree that nobody is really amazed by these powers anymore. And it's just a natural way of how they do things like that's a very basic sort of example, but at the same time, like taking the core of that and it's just showing, you know, how society is influenced by these things and how basically it's the natural order of how business is done there. But expound upon that with the zoo, like you said, and just there's so many different ways in which they could show things that were not in the original game. Really, it is like getting a second life of exploring Rapture. And yet with this, it feels like we're just re-exploring areas that you probably explored in the original game. It's just that now they're not fucked up, right? It's that everything is pristine. It's that not everything is, you know, smashed and broken and there are bloody bodies everywhere and whatnot. But Really, the environments you're exploring are probably more boring than they were in the original Rapture just because there's nothing all that special about them or unique even. Mm. But again, going back to something I was saying before, one of the things people were calling out for was like, oh, I'd love to see it before it fell. You know, that, that was what people wanted. They wanted to see Rapture before it fell. And the reality of that is boring, naturally, because nothing's happened yet. And you know what will happen. So that's not really any drama. So that's always a problem of a prequel, if you will. But then another thing is that a lot of what happens in Bioshock Infinite and the DLCs kind of goes back to Elizabeth's sort of idealized version of reality, you know, and how things should be. And even this, you know, with this whole sort of noir thing going on, yeah, you know, before noir was even a really supposed to be a thing, you know, um, in terms of her lifeline. It's really interesting that it kind of shares a lot of similarities with the world she makes, you know, in her head, you know, the, that off maligned version of Paris with all the stereotypical Paris things, because that's all Elizabeth knows, you know, and there are aspects to this rapture that have that which do make you kind of think, oh, well, it can't be that rapture, you know, like we were saying before. You know, so maybe something's a bit off about all this. And, you know, hmm. again... I might have to play it again. Yeah, I think back to what I was saying about, you know, the multiverse thing gives you excuses for plot holes. You could... I can say this and explain it away, and, you know, my defense straight will be, well, there's nothing that can't be explained by the fact that everything is possible. You know, and more and more we see that these days, you know, with with, um, the whole idea of multiverses. So, you know, on the one hand, it creates interesting ideas on what is and isn't. On the other hand, it's a fucking mess. But, you know. I think, though, that, you know, you make the mundane nature of Rapture Before the Fall interesting for us the player because you're exploring it for the first time obviously when it hasn't gone to shit yeah by kind of like what i was saying about you know you're taking ele- like 
you're taking variables of this new world mm. and you're applying those variables to very mundane things, which at least makes them visually interesting. Yeah. I don't, I think that, you know, that maybe that's just a personal thing for me is that it's like, if I was wandering through an area and the air, even if we don't get like the zoo and whatnot, right. Even if you're going from a bar to, you know, going to a, uh, you know, a newspaper stand and these things, I find that you have these amazing powers that by way of either the society or the multiverse itself, and you can create what the fuck ever you want. Um, It's the type of thing where I think that you can make the mundane intriguing for the player that's exploring this for the first time. If you can show how society has evolved in, you know, being influenced by these amazing abilities and whatnot. I just think that, you know, it seems like a missed opportunity and it really did kind of rub me the wrong way, especially with, uh, episode one or chapter one of Barrel at Sea, where it kind of just feels like we're just cashing in on my nostalgia for the original game and for Rapture, yeah. because it really does not do anything interesting with the setting of Rapture, in my opinion. Sure, I get to continue with two characters that I love. I get to get some more of this combat and kind of the flow of things that I like, but it's real fucking dull, I thought before you even consider the story elements. And I think that while Burial at Sea Part 2 or Chapter 2 is not as good as I remember it being, I'm appreciative of them mixing things up. They take that sort of the ghost angle, right, of, oh, these characters are dead now, but they're still alive in this kind of gray area of the multiverse and whatnot. And you're changing up the gameplay in a way that's not familiar to Bioshock. So in that regard, I found that at least more engaging even if, again, you know, coming back to the central root of everything, it kind of just makes something that was messy even messier, which uh, to some extent I didn't know was possible. But I mean, you know, Bioshock Infinite had a had a messy production. I mean, mm. it was delayed uh, three times, I think. They, they even lampshade that in the game mm. when Elizabeth is looking at something in the arcade and she's like, it was delayed three times. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So there's there's so much that they that they presented, you know. Uh, there's so many things we saw that weren't implemented or uh, was cut outright. Yeah. Uh, and and that you know they can only do so much. But that one gameplay video, um, it introduced people to to Bioshock Infinite properly because we saw Elizabeth in action, we saw Songbird, we saw a lot of the world and the inhabitants and it was still a while before the game would, would hit shelves. Um, and so much of that did not come through like so many of Elizabeth's powers, how they're used the idea that using her powers would harm her. Um, I think they should have kept that. I think that would have made things interesting. I mean, Christ, another thing that would have been ahead of its time for what people are really into now. Yeah. 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 Cause how many fucking, Big media things, yeah, Stranger Things, fucking Scarlet Witch, yeah, stuff like that. It, it's all right. there. Yeah. She, she was eleven before eleven. Yeah, um, yeah, and Scarlet Witch too, in terms of creating yeah. her own reality. Yeah, and it's it's amazing that this game has so many things that have gone on to be fucking massively popular in general media now, and people can look back and say it has no cultural significance. And it's like it, it clearly does. Look at look at what it did, you know, and we 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 thought we, tears were going to be a much bigger deal. Yes, um, we we thought, uh, you know, we, there was so much that they did not include, could not include, and I understand that, but you know, I understand also 
why someone would be disappointed. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, mentioning what you guys just did, you know, narratively, it would have made it more interesting. But even from a gameplay perspective, right, the fact that you can't overly rely on this seemingly endless source of, you know, whether it's supplies, whether it's, you know, bringing in all those tears and the resources and even the uh, the defensive and offensive capabilities, right, it would limit the player in a way that I think would balance out the fact that really there's no repercussions for death in this, right? I think that it's kind of the same thing that was in the original with the, yeah. um, I forget what they were called, uh, what are they called, Vita Chambers yeah. or something like that. But anyways, whenever you die in this game, you basically just have to retrace like four steps and then you're right back to where you were. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, this would have been a nice balance to the fact that there's no real repercussions for death. But you sure as shit are not going to be able to overly rely on the tears and whatnot. Yeah. Um, I also wish that there had been a little bit more of an interesting take on the tears. Like there's a fleeting – I mean narratively speaking. Um, there's a moment early on when you're at Fink's like workshop when you know you and Elizabeth have had this riff and you're chasing after her. And she uses the tears to slow Booker down from chasing her. Yeah. Like at one point he has to – he's blocked by a marching band and then it's balloons and then it's a train car. Yeah visually that was so interesting i thought and just it shows that she's able to use these powers in a way that is not always like life or death right she's able mm. to use it as as a deterrent and just that was so interesting and I, that's really the only moment i can think of that she uses it in that way other yeah. than you know of course the the return of the jedi bit and the bee and then songbird shows up and whatnot she, she does also threaten him with that uh uh Kansas Cyclone. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, she does. <laughs> Which again, just, uh, it's one of those things that kind of puts a, a nice spin on what her powers are, where they're not really multiverses necessarily, but just like her imagined realities from what she knows. And because uh, she's more of a time traveler than a, a multiverser, do you know what I mean? And she just, you know, much like others have been the game's whole theme is like picking up bits of pop culture throughout history and dragging them into your current time, you know, is a common occurrence in this game. Yeah. So it would make sense that, you know, Elizabeth is very much governed by the same rules. You know, and so yeah, it, it's always something that plays on my mind. And it's like, it'd be cool if it was more about that, that, we're being told it's all about multiverses, but really it's just she's able to project her, her imagination into reality and make that what she believes because she's been so closeted to what the world actually is. She only has reference points that have been given to her. Well, you know, in talking about sort of the many lives of Bioshock Infinite and content that was cut and whatnot, you know, one, one thing that Michael had uh, included in his notes that I can't not bring up because it was in mine as well um, was a bit of, I believe it was E3 gameplay footage where you have Booker encountering Comstock giving a rally to no one, which is yeah. immediately just kind of like even more disturbing than what he's kind of like promoting, right? And the fact that when he notices Booker, he has this moment where he kind of shouts out, Charles, attend, which is basically calling over this bodyguard that yeah. has the uh, the raven vigor, um, yeah. which then, you know, sends this flurry of ravens, which then distracts Booker while Booker ends up killing Charles and then Comstock escapes. But, you know, that moment and specifically that one moment of the pre-release footage has always stuck with me 
because overall, I was expecting Infinite to be defined a lot more in terms of its characters mm. standing out, I think. Like, this is one of the things that is still always kind of bugged me about Infinite in that, A, it's not weird enough, in my opinion. I find that, you know, the types of enemies that you face should be far more defined by their, you know, abilities and whatnot. Mm. And the fact that they kind of feels like they don't come up enough almost. Like when I think about combat in Infinite, a majority of it is revolved around either the Columbia police or, you know, the Vox Populi soldiers. And there's not enough interactions I find with like, whether it's the firefighters or it's the, um, you know, the Order of the Raven yeah. or, you know, even the uh, the handymen who, you know, as pivotal as the big daddies were in Bioshock 1 and 2, I'm kind of taken aback even still by how few and far between the interactions with the handymen are. Mm. You know, out, yeah. there's maybe five combat arenas where you face them or something along those lines. But I don't know, you know, when the world completely fall, begins to fall apart and it becomes even more unhinged, I feel like the fact – and Neil, you mentioned this earlier, right? The idea that these people are have this unfettered power that nobody can really regulate – I feel like that needs to be even heightened the further to the conclusion you get because yeah. there's no societal restraints at all anymore in a society where there's not supposed to be any restraints really. Yeah. I, actually, one of the interesting things I think the game does as chaos sort of unfolds in the game is that I think the more Comstock is confronted by the chaos that Booker is creating and what that means for himself, the less his attention is on making everything pristine and perfect. And it's almost like, you know, Columbia as a place doesn't function unless he's functioning properly, you know, and like that. And it's like, um, for any Red Dwarf fans out there, it's got that sort of better of better than life thing. You know, it's like where Rimmer is out there just every time he has terrible thoughts, it just makes his experience in this virtual world worse you know, because he can't help himself, but, you know, self-destruct like that. So if you distract from Utopia, you are just plotting your own downfall somewhat. And I think given how everything goes, I mean, down to the fact that there are storms and things like that, it just feels a bit, it's either very convenient sort of like, you know, visual storytelling, or it's, you know, a physical manifestation of what's going on. And... Going back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, the idea that there are people that can bend reality to their will somewhat, and the fact that Elizabeth is kept captive like she is, that to me kind of feeds into it a bit. But even if not, I like the the metaphorical idea that it brings up, you know, the, this allegory, if you will, of Comstock's grip on Columbia being loosened by this version turning up and just ruining it for him. You know? I mean, J Jason Voorhees' appearance is usually preceded by a thunderstorm. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's, I like, I actually want to go back to Charles if I can. Um, Absolutely. Because Jay, that's more tragic than, than, you know, actually, because there are two cut characters from that sequence. Um, uh, <laughs> because uh, that's not Comstock. That's a, a guy named Sultan Saul. Um, who, who, at least in that footage, it seems like he's campaigning 
yeah. uh, to be president of Colombia, to be a governor. I don't know. But as you mentioned, he's he's campaigning to empty chairs. Yeah. Um, when you take a rifle, when, when you, when the whoever was working that gameplay footage from E3 takes a rifle, he reacts, he glitches out seemingly, um, and his campaign button seems to change to the Soviet symbol. Oh, shit. I We're, completely missed that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was all very interesting. And, and of course, it, it started this flurry of fan theories and activity. Um, and then, he, of course, he calls Charles to, to, to wreck your shit. But <laughs> both of those guys cut from the game, although Saltonstall is referenced because uh, later in Infinite, there's a gallows and you see a bunch of uh, uh, scalps that the Vox have taken yes. and his name is on the board. Well, that's a perfect uh, segue, I think, into another sort of, I suppose, approach to the world of Columbia that I wish they had gone a little bit further with and almost kind of echoed back to the original Bioshocks. Because when I think about Bioshock 1 and 2, those games are defined almost entirely by the sort of the sub-villains, if you will, that you encounter, right? The different characters that are tied to the different zones that you explore. And I'm still kind of taken aback by Columbia not really having a great deal of, you know, sub-antagonists, if you will, other than you've got Comstock and then, you know, thinking of the other players in that world, you know, Fitzroy and whatnot. But I was expecting more characters serving as, you know, an example of people that are getting carried away with their power in this society, right? And the ideals and whatnot. Like, especially when you go to the Order of the Raven, I'm surprised that you're not encountering a figurehead of the organization or something like that, right? You Absolutely. fight you fight an enemy that is just, by all accounts, just a kind of stock standard member or a party member, if you will. But you're not facing like a central figurehead or anything like that. And I think that if anything, that would have made each of the areas that you explore that much more interesting in a way that, you know, not to say that I was kind of just sleepwalking through Columbia, but I find that it would have strengthened each environment that you visit um, had you had those interactions, you know, outside of Slate, right? I struggle to think of any real villains outside of the core of the uh, the main plot, right? And I think that the cut content that we've been talking about, like, would have been an example of Again, these figureheads that get carried away with the powers of this, uh, you know, idyllic society, supposedly. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, you have Slate, you you have Fink, although you know he's a guy in a suit. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the and the Order of the Raven, I agree, would have been a perfect place for a, a mini boss of sorts. But I also, you know, the way my brain works, I wonder if that wasn't intentional. You know that you that you don't come across a figurehead because. It's to show that anyone uh, can be racist and it is a cowardly thing to be. So, of course, they're going to have masks on and not be defined by who they are, yeah. but by what they profess. Um, one of my favorite characters is, is in Infinite is only in audio logs. Uh, you don't even come across them. And I, I unfortunately forget the name of the character, but he's a bounty hunter, hunter. Yeah. a bounty hunter. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's fascinating. You actually first audio diary of his you pick up is right before the Order of the Raven, and uh, he Comstock hires him to to hunt folks down, and eventually he gets to a point you learn where he 
bitterly regrets the things he's doing. Yeah. And that was, that's a byproduct too. That's probably actually a great example of where the multiverse stuff actually does work for me. Cause correct me if I'm wrong, but the reason that that character has a change of heart is because of the fact they're in a multiverse where he has a change of heart or through his actions or just seeing how society has adapted. Is that, is that true? Is that an example of the multiverse kind of portraying characters in a different light? Or was that just, you know, something that would have occurred throughout all the different uh, verses? In in my most recent playthrough, I have not gotten back to that audio log. So I cannot say with, with uh, certainty, but I, I would not be surprised if you had jumped a universe or two by then. <laughs> I think that would be though a strong example of like how the multiverse could be used. I think with some of the f- central figureheads of this story to give them, you know, perhaps a character like Fitzroy that I find is abandoned far too quickly, considering how complex and intriguing they are. The audio logs in the back half of the game, I feel like could have been an example of exploring them a little bit more, whether that being in a new facet of the character or just showing how the multiverse could have influenced certain characters arcs and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but that's a, that's a personal gripe that I've uh, been harping on a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it, you're good. And they, you know, they could have used more, more, um, you know, besides having more, uh, fascinating characters to remember and latch on to, mm-hmm. it would have been nice to just have more battles too. another cut character that I only knew about because of uh, an art book. They were going to have this toy maker character yeah. who I think utilized an army of clockwork uh, soldiers that he had built. <laughs> um, he's also referenced in the game uh, in, a, in a, a very small Easter egg. You can only see if you have ghost mode on, at the very beginning at the lighthouse, you find a little clockwork crab on the other side of the <laughs> lighthouse. Not visible if you're just playing, but that sounds like it would have been a really fun fight. And I, I wish they could have worked it in. Yeah, I, I suppose pacing was always the issue here where they, they already seemed to struggle with it a bit, where they would rush through the bits to sort of... I mean, again, this is another reason why if this game had been made later, they could have got away with a lot more because they would have been allowed the time to be a longer game than they are. Yeah, because it was this year where single-player games especially could fundamentally be longer and not just because they had an open world. And it's just sort of sat on the precipice of that and... He almost left thinking, oh, what could have been if they were allowed to have the time to stretch that story out? I think it really would have benefited it because there's so many sections where you think, I don't know what I learned there. You know, I, I could have learned more. I feel like I'm touching the surface of this. And the only way you're going to get it are either if you've read everything that you've picked up in the game or if you've gone and looked for it yourself outside of the game, which, you know, I, I, understand is a way of doing things hell i do it with movies all the time but it shouldn't have to be that way you know you, you when it comes to the actual game story you want to have the flow be just right that you can tell each individual story and i go all the way back to the start of what we were saying here where i said you know it has these tones that it goes through and it these themes and elements and you can feel those more than anything because there's no story that really is truncated by each part you know stuff happens in each section and timeline whatever it is 
but none of it feels connective, nor does it feel separate. It kind of just happens. It's stuff that has been put into that point of the game rather than be something that makes sense to the whole plot. You know, they kind of rush over, you know, just roll over certain bits and go, oh, you know, I'd like to know more about why we're doing this, you know, beyond audio logs or diary pages or whatever. It's like, and there's where your extra time, extra time would have come in useful because you could have extrapolated a bit more detail. Not much, just a little bit more in each section to really kind of just sell what you're doing. And games did later come and do this in so many ways. I mean, one of the greatest examples of flipping timelines in modern first person history is Titanfall 2, where there's that whole section. It is so confident at doing it at that point, having seen it done that they do it for one section, make it coherent, make it make sense within the context of the game, and then they just say, fuck that, we're leaving it. And Dishonored 2 does the same thing. You know, It has one mission where you have the ability to flip between timelines, and it's great. But that's it. It only makes sense in the context of that level, and they explain it so well, both in terms of the story and what you hear, and what you see, and what you read. And in Bioshock Infinite's terms, just by nature of it being the one to go out there and try this, it's spread a little thin and doesn't quite tell it in the way that it could have done. So it's one of those games now that you look at and go, it kind of would want a director's cut, you know, something that really just sort of added something to each section to really just push home its themes in a way that I think you could tell were missing because of budget, time, you know, everything, you know, those little things that go into game development that make you go, make people go, oh, well, we wanted it to be this, but we had to cut this, this and this. And good editing in that regard means that you don't cut anything significant, but it's very difficult because you're always going to lose a little bit of context, whatever you do. One of the rare games that I think I would actually like if it was like three hours longer mm. is primarily if those three hours were more focused on fleshing out the story yeah. and whatnot and the different elements of what you know we've been uh, championing and whatnot, which is not something I say about many games uh, in general, but also games that you know are like 11 to 12 hours or whatever in length. Um, I think that it's very rare that I say that. And I think that I wouldn't be saying that about a game if I didn't already have a great deal of enjoyment out of it. Again, you know, I've harped on about the characters and whatnot, but more importantly, I think that you see these kernels of what could be so much more and expressed more clearly. And, you know, again, we've talked about the limitations and the sort of, uh, I don't know about rushed, but definitely the sort of turbulent development cycle that this had and whatnot and the delays and whatnot. And you just can't help but think like, especially all these years removed, it's like, how much more impactful or how much stronger could these thematic elements be if they had had the clarity with which, you know, you can clearly see they perhaps wanted to, but the messiness comes from the fact that you're trying to get all of these different complex bits and bobs out of yeah. the door um, in a timely fashion. I think, you know, like Neil said, pacing is always an issue. Um, budget is always an issue. The The main thing is just putting out the best product you can. And I, and having a story that resonates and, you know, obviously given the length we've been talking about this, uh, they clearly had that. Um, it's, you know, 
and you know the game has been so influential you know gameplay and narratively um i actually you know i put in my notes i you know we can talk about now but uh people like to talk about games that could be bioshock games if it was the anthology format games that fit the criteria that have the constants of a man a city and a lighthouse and and given what we know from playing the bioshock games i think you could make an argument that the constants also involve uh, overwhelming firepower, whether that's guns or magic, and something to do with a surrogate father relationship. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, it's not in every eligible game, but I think it's you definitely see that yeah. more often there's than a, not. There's always elements there. You know, there's always elements. Whether it's exactly the same or not, you know, when you mention some eligible games here, you know, Arcane being the ones doing most of these, you know, Dishonored has it in reverse a bit. Um, you know, Prey has it very succinctly in, in the surrogate sense, which ends up being its big twist, you know, like, um, uh, you know, a surrogate based on a real, you know, paternal thing going on. And, you know, the other thing is always at the core of all these things is absolute power being manipulated in a way that causes some sort of weird shit to happen. You know, that, that's that's what you want. You know, Dishonored has it, Prey has it, you know, even Fallout New Vegas, as you put in your notes, has that, you know. It's the ability to take technology gone wrong and manipulate it to suit you and the consequences of that you know and uh, that's always there you know i think maybe infinite out of the bioshock games kind of leans into it the least you know in terms of the powers and like the sort of putting them in yourself i think you know, that was so well done in the original game and even to respects to the second game but infinite is kind of less about that where they're sort of trying to lean more into the other parts of it but you know but it's still an element and this goes back to what you were saying with you know the constant variables and eligible games is that you don't have to do it exactly the same each time you just shuffle around which bit is important to you you know and it can still be the same kind of game just done in a different way and all those games we've mentioned do exactly exactly that so you can excuse bioshock infinite not doing things exactly the same way as the original Bioshock, um, because it still maintains those core elements in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, and this is just me personally, but I think that through the course of three games, at the core of a Bioshock experience, so long as from a gameplay standpoint, I can shock a guy and then get him with a headshot with the traditional firearm or something <laughs> that's a little, a little different, um, I think that it's more about, again, the attention to world building. Yeah. I could care less the connectivity tissue to the original games. I could care less if it's a city in the sky or underneath the ocean. It could be in space for all I care. Um, I could care less about the time period. It's more about, for me, the Bioshock brand is all about that world building and showing you know, how this unfettered power has corrupted people. Mm. Um, and you know, again, the time period is irrelevant to me because you know, as we've seen, people don't change as much as we think that they do. And no. just seeing yeah, how people are yeah. able to run away with whether it's technology, whether it's you know, magic powers and whatnot, um, I think that so long as Bioshock abides by 
those kind of core elements of world building and character design. Um, you know, I, it wouldn't hurt for the new Bioshock to get even weirder. I'm always in favor of games getting weird, whether it's the world or the characters. But I think for me personally, a continuation of that, I just I trust that the core pillars of what it means to be a Bioshock game abide by those things. And mm-hmm. the actual variables of them matter far less to me so long as, you know, they're thought provoking, so long as they have characters that you can care about and they have this emotional drive in them. Because yeah. um, that really is the thing that I think Infinite does in establishing itself as a continuation and it's that the world is a vital part of it and it is one of the core pillars like i said but it's not the end-all be-all of the experience Um, you can tell stories that have characters that are very personable and uh, sympathetic and even in some cases not sympathetic Mm. right i think that you can have these characters that are very complex that is not just attributing you know, a generic sort of first-person shooter protagonist to the world. Um, it's a world that is complex, and you can have equally complex protagonists and, uh, you know, companions in that world. And if they're able to continue that with, you know, the next Bioshock, um, I will be there, uh, you know, <laughs> sight on scene. Yeah. I, so the one big thing that will have to be tackled, obviously, is that, you know, it's going to be a completely different team which, you know, was an obstacle that already came up for the second game. And, you know, very recently we, we were talking about Atomic Heart. You know, that that is as close as you're going to get to another team trying to take on that idea. You know, everything about that game is a Bioshock game in terms of, like, how it sets it up, what it has. You know, it has all the fundamentals, you know, and in much the same way Infinite does, it doesn't get them all right. And there are flaws in it, but you can kind of see what they're going for and you can admire it. Now, someone making an official Bioshock sequel that isn't made by the original team, that's trickier because you have that name weighing down on you in much the same way. Ironically, when we're talking about Prey, that you know, Arcane Austin had that name hanging over them for a game that wasn't, you know, that well received when it came out, but people who loved that game, were furious that, that this name had been taken to make this other game, you know, like that, which you know, ended up being a really good game. But it was always stuck with the stigma of Prey as a name. It's like, this isn't the Prey I knew. And the new team are going to have the same problem. You know, that they're going to have to find a way to balance what Bioshock was with something fresh, you know. And the problem, as we've just been saying, is there's so many angles that have been done now because it's been so long, you know, 10 years since the last Bioshock, that you're kind of running out of places to go. You know, you can quip about it being in space. It's been done. That's prey. You know, it's like you can... Well, it's System Shock too. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, before even that. Yeah, exactly. And then you go to variants like Atomic Heart. It's like, oh, you know, it's doing... the whole political vibe, you know, and doing it through Soviet Russia. So what do you do now? What do you do? Where do you take it? And I well, suppose this I have is the place, an answer for that. Well, I was about to say, I would have to come to you, Michael, and say, what is the answer to making a Bioshock sequel at this point? Okay, so I got to tell you, this this is not my idea. I had found this on Reddit. It looks like the user has since deleted their account, but the post is still available. Um, this was a couple of years ago. Someone had a pitch for Bioshock 4, and I just thought it was a great idea. I'm I'm 102% positive this is not what we'll get, 
but I love this idea. They wanted it to be called Bioshock Paradise. And they said, you know, the original game took inspiration from the innovation of the Chicago World's Fair, Ayn Rand's philosophy. Infinite took inspiration from turn of the century Americana and, you know, utopic Norman Rockwell visions of life. Yeah, the steampunk Um, stuff as well. Right. So this pit for Bioshock 4 is the idea of a utopia set in a fictitious Polynesian area imagined by Americans in the 50s and 60s mm. where everything west of Hawaii was you know an exotic world of tiki gods savages with blowguns dangerous jungles giant boa constrictors and this uh, Reddit user imagined that it would be set inside an active volcano you'd contend with lava you would drink uh, from the chalice of a tiki god to get the the equivalent of plasmids and vigors, and you would have to contend with um, these rock and lava monsters who were the equivalent of big daddies. Yeah. And I was like, that sounds so awesome. We're definitely never going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an example, though, of taking that Bioshock formula and just getting as weird and deranged with it as possible, because at this point, it's again, you know, I think that the core of what is there is so strong that at this point, who's going to question, you know, you mentioned suspending a uh, player's disbelief. Like at this point, if you have this magical society, who gives a shit if they're, you know, drinking from a bottle of a vigor or if they're drinking from the chalice of some kind of God, right? Yeah. It's something that's very malleable. And, you know, if you want to mess around with different time periods or different, you know, geographical settings or even just, you know, different mythologies and whatnot, um, you know, not to say necessarily that Bioshock needs to be annualized like uh, Assassin's Creed or anything like that, but the potential is there for tapping into, you know, other time periods and other cultures and societies and whatnot, uh, just so long as, you know, they make it abundantly clear that this society is quite often, uh, you know, a depiction of how that society is viewed rather than, you know, being uh, something that is uh, just nothing but caricatures, right? Yeah. And so the one thing where multiverse really can play a part in any of them is that you can just take any time period and apply the Bioshock sheen to it because, you know, that's it. It's an alternate version of history. So we've done, you know, the 1900s. That's fine. You know, we've done that to death. So for me, I take it deeper further back i would say have an alternate version of the roman empire where they got to keep power keep power a bit longer because they discovered these things and like that and then you are basically plopped at the forefront of taking down the roman empire by in this new alternate world uh where you know you can be inventive and not have to rely on guns, but you have variants of things that could be like guns and, you know, these powers that make you seem almost godlike when you go back to the idea of gods, you know, that there's a continuation of where the Romans sort of appropriated gods from Greek mythology and, you know, you could almost be viewed as a god. And that would almost be a more interesting way of doing what Assassin's Creed has done in, in recent years, you know, and make you some sort of like, deity in your own way without actually officially being one you know you are there on the precipice of being something godly but here to imagine you could actually be perceived as that you know 
and having this internal struggle between an empire and the people about what kind of person you are are you a person are you a god are you are you a savior are you not like that that would be interesting to me because you can really manipulate the people of that time into believing things because of this unforeseen technology that's come into their hands you know and we've already discovered through the universe of bioshock that anything can come to anywhere at any time so that would be like the most extreme way to do it you know in much the same way that far cry really refreshed what they were doing by going to the fucking you know caveman era with, with primal you know it's something that really just rips bioshock out of what it's been before while still remaining bioshock i think that would be a good way to do it bioshock 4 all lo- all roads lead to ryan yep there you go <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, I would try to find a uh, a happy medium between like Far Cry Primal with the Bioshock thing where you take it back to, you know, the Stone Age and seeing the ways in which you could adapt storytelling to this time period and the ways in which you could kind of manipulate technology and people's perception of what life was like back then. And, you know, I also just want to electrocute a dinosaur or woolly mammoth or something. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing at the idea that you could really simplify it and just have someone go back in time and have a lighter. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's, like, it's like, look, they're a fucking freak. <laughs> oh, but, but imagine if they did do a Stone Age Bioshock and you could uh, make a T-Rex your mount. Yeah, there you go. Imagine incinerating a guy while riding a T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> the possibilities are seemingly endless. I hope the studio is listening because this is gold right here. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we've delayed production for several more years now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a segue for this, but I am so nervous about this Netflix movie. Yeah. It, you know, it's the same hesitation whenever they're going to adapt anything, right? But it, when it's Bioshock, right, it's like, you really worry that they're going to latch on to, and you know, it's a common problem adaptations. It's like they're going to latch on to one or two of the elements that are most marketable of it while missing what makes these such substantial experiences. Um, at least for me, you know, I could see them just kind of like shoehorning in as much of the big daddy as possible because that's what, you know, the visual language of Bioshock. It's like, Oh, well, you've got to have the big daddy be the central figure of everything which completely kind of like misses the point in the richer context of rapture and whatnot. Um, I'm worried that they'll make an action movie, you know? Right. And then going along with the big daddies would be nothing but action set pieces, which would not make for a very good adaptation. I mean, the things to like about that adaptation is that you've got the writer from Blade Runner 2049. So maybe it's not going to be as blunt force as that. On the other hand, it has a director of I Am Legend. And if there was a movie that started promisingly and just fudged its way to completion, there it is. But, I mean, it could be worse. They could have Constantine running the whole joint and we could get a Resident Evil series again. And and that would just be horrendous. I don't think we're going to get that, thankfully. So... I have a little bit of hope, a little bit of hope, just based on that, but that the outlier here is Netflix because they like to do things cheap enough the first time around to offset costs. And that's becoming increasingly clear. So yeah, it's, I'm hoping maybe that now having seen the success of the last of us, they might 
take it a little more seriously and I, I feel the same for you know any other adaptation that other companies will go well okay they did it they made it right I mean HBO is like an outlier here anyway but still seeing it work hopefully is that catalyst where the rest of them will put a bit more money into their projects and say no look, let's make it worthwhile let's make it good some won't Netflix the least likely to well, I think with The Last of Us too, not to go on a whole tangent about the series, but I think that what has been so refreshing about the reception of the series and, you know, some of the uh, faint criticism of it is that it's like, oh, well, there aren't – there isn't that much emphasis on the infected, right? We've only had probably less than a handful of moments that really show off or focus on the infected when, you know, people like us find that as being a strength of it because it's focusing on the aspect of the game that is so strong, which is the characters and the storytelling – the ways in which you can build upon that subject matter and expand on it in a you know full-fledged series. And you would hope that other studios like Netflix are learning from the fact that, oh, you can take this direction and your viewership can be as high as The Last of Us is leading up to the season finale. Every single week, every episode has performed better than the one before it. And so going in this very non-traditional route of adapting video games into series or, you know, film to some extent, um, I think that that has been what is so rewarding about The Last of Us being adapted. Um, and hopefully studios are going to learn from that. But with somebody like Netflix who is churning out content, you know, on a, on a daily basis, it's the type of thing where it's like, how much are they going to listen? Yeah, I mean, you said the magic word there, content. That's how they see it. They don't see it yeah. as... Uh, we need things for the algorithm. Yeah, but it, <laughs> if you're making something with the intent of being art, I mean, The Last of Us is a great example. You know, it will be more abrasive to fans because it's not directly hitting beats that you want it to. And that's really tough to take to begin with, but it shows you someone who's doing it in a way that is respectful of the source, mm. but also knowing that look, there's a whole audience here that have seen all this shit already. Let's do something different with it and make it more palatable for everybody. Like that. It, the exact opposite way that was handled in that Resident Evil series last year, where it was like, yeah, let's make it different. Why? Why not? That sort of thing. Yeah, like the, it, Not because there was any reason or rhyme or to make it more palatable. They just said, we need a show that's like this and we have this license. Let's make it like that. But what if they don't fit? Who cares? That's it. They yeah. just do it like that. And I did not watch it. I saw the trailer, and I was like, "Oh, the trailer was 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 enough." Yeah, that, it's, probably, <laughs> it's still probably the most negative episode of, of this show we've ever done. Yes, um, <laughs> and it was mainly because it just I had to. We I had to have that catharsis of yeah. doing it. You know. And I hope never to do that again like that. And I, I just, mm. when we do cover the last of a show, that will not be the case quite the same way. But anyway, that's a real tangent we just ran off on. <laughs> we should probably wrap this baby up a bit and uh, get to the end of the road so, or the cycle or the circle or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> well, I guess I will, uh, in that case, uh, leave it to Michael. Michael, were there any last points that you wanted to touch upon? on Bioshock Infinite before we wrap things up. We've had quite a lengthy chat, but I don't want to cut you short if you had a uh, a burning desire to tackle one less topic. I, you know, Jay, Neil, I've had such a good time uh, discussing all this with you, the Bioshock franchise, Bioshock Infinite. I 
my my only thing is I would say to anyone who never gave the game a chance because it looks so different, or they had heard reviews that that the story was was not up to snuff. I really think they should play it and and make their own opinions because I thought it was beautiful. I you know all the Bioshock games are things I return to on a, the, a regular basis, but Infinite especially and, and you know. For all the time we've taken, we uh, we glossed over things like how beautiful the music is I and yeah. and that end credit sequence and um, so much more that we just can't get into because we all have bedtimes. But <laughs> uh, I again, I'm just so grateful to to have uh, joined you guys for this, and I can't wait to be back on the show when we cover the Bioshock movie. <laughs> absolutely well we will certainly keep you in mind for that and you know as i said in the top of the episode we were thrilled not only to have you back but to have somebody that was so enthusiastic to chat about a game that uh you know i think that there's a lot to say and as you mentioned you know we can only cover so much of it but i hope that you found this conversation as productive and in some ways cathartic as uh, the pair of us did and we look forward to having you back in the future my friend absolutely thank you thank you for listening to another episode of safe room if you enjoy the show please write us on itunes and follow us on twitter at safe room pod for show updates you can also join our discord channel safe room podcast to chat with us and other horror fans about the genre we love you can email us over at safe room pod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover thanks again for listening and we'll see you guys next monday